Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to further understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 30th of September 2019 and this is episode 130. On this week's podcast, Dr Bruce Cherry talks about his book, They Didn't Want to Die Virgins, about sex and morale in the British Army on the Western Front during the Great War. This has been published by Helian and Co. I spoke to Bruce from his home in Berkshire. Bruce, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and the sex life of the Tommy? Um, yes, well, thanks, first of all, for asking me to uh, to do this podcast. It's going to be great fun. Um, I've been a, a member of Western Front Association now for 15, 20 years, perhaps, and uh, became interested, like most people, through a, a relative interest, a couple of grandfathers uh, that were involved in the Great War, and spent my first summer after university, so I'm talking about 1974 or five. I hitchhiked down to Sarajevo to stand in the footsteps of, uh, of uh, Gabriel Princip, and basically I've been hooked on the Great War as a subject ever since. And why do you think sex and the Tommy is an important subject? Uh, well, I, I fell into sex and the Tommy, really, by almost by accident, in that um, I picked up a, a book written by a German author called Hirschfeld many years ago, um, which explored the whole area of sex, from uh, mostly from a German perspective in the Second World War, and, and found it very interesting. And then I started to read various uh, bits from British academics, which would claim there was very little sex going on, and and that didn't seem to me to be correct because if anything proved there was sexual activity, it was the venereal disease figures more than anything else. Uh, and so once my curiosity was piqued, I started to to take note of references I was finding. Now, to give us a bit of background, what was the average, in inverted commas, sex life of Edwardian men prior to the Great War? Well, it's going to depend very much on the class, the culture, the age and the experience of the man. Um, I'm not sure, you know, we'd have to look at averages in each of those areas. But I would say that generally, let's talk about anything other than the the very high uh, social classes and the very low social classes. Um, because they would have quite, those two would have quite um, different uh, sex lives to the, the median, to the average man, to the average Edwardian. But the, the, the prevailing moral norm would have been perhaps best described as muscular Christianity. And um, there was, uh, although there wasn't perhaps a huge uh, amount of church going um, per se, people still obviously had a, a strong moral code. Um, that would have been uh, described as, I suppose, knowing right was right and wrong was wrong, and they'd follow the Ten Commandments. And self-control, that I think would be the all-pervading code. 
What was the general view of masturbation um, in this period? Was it seen as um, some form of sort of weakening that men should, or anybody should avoid uh, in go, in engaging in this solitary activity? Well, that was all very much part of the, uh, the self-control. Uh, uh, masturbation would have been, um, as Kipling and others described it, as beastliness. And uh, it was felt to basically weaken the spirit and the soul. So yes, that that even at the basic level, that sort of sexual activity was uh, was frowned upon. Sex was about something that you did for procreation, and uh, not really enjoyment. And obviously, um, homosexuality was uh, illegal under the current statute then. And how was it viewed by society um, as a whole? Well, I think largely society didn't really know much about it. It was something that was so much on the fringes that it would have been only at the, uh, uh, certainly at the uh, upper class areas where, of course, the, the sort of public schoolboy uh, might have seen and been aware of it. But I think in the general run of things, people uh, didn't really know a lot about it. And if they did, they just thought it was something that was absolutely abhorrent. So Tommy joins up, gets into khaki, arrives in France. What was his sex life like and where did he have sex? Well, I think the important thing to note there, actually, is first of all is how his morals eroded from that uh, position of muscular Christianity to an acceptance of uh, uh, sexual, act, sexual acts. And the army did a lot to do that almost as soon as a man joined up his his moral code came under a great deal of threat from other guys he met up with from um, the old soldier the old regular soldier whose sexual attitude was very different to the kitchener armies and then drink uh, played a large part in it that further eroded his his with not his morals it made him more open to temptation so where was that temptation? Well, you can put it down into when it, uh, two distinct uh, activities, I guess, or distinct areas. One would have been paid for sex, and the other would have been what we might call fraternisation. And is this generally sort of found in documentary and sort of memoir accounts? Is it a relatively common thing that people report? Oh, no, absolutely not. It's, it's hidden. It's, it's under the bedclothes, so to speak. Um, there was a great quote from um, a French, couple of French authors, Adwin Rosier and Becker, that I came across, and uh, I've got it in front of me, so I'll read it. Um, and they say in their book, which was Understanding the Great War, this is 2002, they say, aside from some very rare allusions in the competence accounts of their wartime experiences, masturbation, prostitution, and homosexuality are shrouded in the deepest silence. And I think that's probably the best uh, summary, really, of it. This is all obviously going on in France. How did the high command um, view all this activity with Tommy doing whatever thing? And what sort of measures did they take either to prevent or maybe encourage um, sexual activity uh, amongst the soldiery in France? Well, the, the army was really split. The, the army's main concern was patently in keeping men fit for the front line. And anything they could do to, to make sure that they had these guys there, they would do. Now, set against that, of course, is there is a sort of moral code back at home that they've got to adhere to, or at least be seen to be adhering to. So the 
the army almost becomes schizophrenic in this. It, it starts realising that if morale is to be upheld, then young lads in the height of their, their youthful virility period are going to need to be satisfied in some way or other, and that whatever they do, the army's not really going to be able to stop men going off and, and finding the other sex. Uh, the problem is, they go off and find the other sex. At that time, venereal disease was prevalent throughout the civili civilian population, and uh, the army was very keen to ensure that its men did not get um, any sort of STDs, because that, by definition, would take them out of the line. So the army's responses were, first and foremost, to try and control prostitution if they couldn't control the men's desires at least they could try and control the health of those they went to see so they established the famed red lamps or they sanctioned the use of the existing maison torie that the this is the, the french brothel systems that existed throughout france and belgium before the great war did um, the army have a different um, attitude to officers having sex as opposed to the ranker having sex not really. I wouldn't say there was a different attitude. The main thing was officers should not be seen in the company of known prostitutes because that would obviously be in some way denigrating the uniform. I, I would say you know, they, they never really encouraged, encouraged it openly and uh, they did everything they could formally to, to try and hide what was being done. Um, this was a fairly successful uh, policy, and it's very difficult to find anything actually written, uh, for example, about the brothels or any sort of formal sanctioning of them by the army, until you get to a case in 1917 when one particular brothel in Cayenne near um, Abbeville suddenly became the focus of a great deal of attention because of complaints and because people at home, notably um, some of the Christian brigades at home, uh, took up cudgels against this uh, particular uh, uh, brothel. And, um, and then the army did everything it could to, on the one hand, show that it was trying to suppress demand, shall we say, or trying to control the brothel, but on the other hand, still carrying on turning a bit of a blind eye to it. And what, what sort of sexually transmitted diseases um, were prevalent uh, amongst the soldiery during the First World War? Well, uh, pretty much everyone you could name. Um, gonorrhea and syphilis were rife, and of course there was no uh, real treatment for those. Wasserman test and whatever for syphilis hadn't come in yet. So uh, I say the, the key was once a man uh, developed venereal disease, he was going to be pretty poorly, um, and especially if the man didn't admit to it, if the man tried to hide it because of uh, social embarrassment or family embarrassment or whatever, then the man could become very sick indeed. And what was the attitude of people at the home front towards um, the sex life of Tommy Atkins in France and Belgium? Well, <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting because your, your, your attitude is going to be different over the whole period. I mean, obviously, we're looking at the whole 14 to 18 period, and there's lots of nuances um, that occur over the course of that. I mean, you had, for example, at home you did have um, quite a lot of sexuality going on. Once again, probably not totally being talked about, but you had, uh, you know, in wartime, morals generally did, did 
decline. Um, you had a great deal of, of um, I suppose, uh, premarital sex. If men were off to join the army uh, and they may not come back, then say there was a, a feeling that perhaps the seed ought to be spread while the opportunity was there. You also had um, a sort of general breakdown amongst young girls. There was a khaki madness um, with young girls chasing uh, soldiers in the uniform for a while, and that obviously led to something of a breakdown in, in moral standing. You then also had in the major cities, and especially in London, you had a lot of girls or women who uh, turned to prostitution or if not outright prostitution, then we might say semi-prostitution, where they, they may be working for favours as opposed to, to money. And now there, that was the most prevalent of all, and London was, was crawling with these sort of girls, and they would target the young Tommy coming home on leave, and especially the Dominion boys, uh, Aussies, Kiwis and uh, Canadians, all coming back to the UK for their leave because they couldn't go home uh, and these girls would target them because they were healthy young men and usually had a lot more in their pocket than the Tommies had. Um, the problem then was that those lads might catch venereal disease back in London and that was very damaging to the Dominion armies and uh, the Dominion leaders were the ones who were most outspoken about uh, that situation rather than the, the families. And how did uh, the army actually sort of screen and maybe treat uh, venereal disease? And were there any real treatments available at the time to manage these, these problems? Well, the, the first, first thing that the army did, of course, was to try and ensure that the chaps didn't catch anything by controlling the, the brothels. Um, the base camp brothels especially were subject to regular inspection by doctors. The girls were, were inspected regularly. And within the very primitive environment that these brothels existed, um, a, a sort of health regime was put in to try and ensure that uh, cleanliness as much as possible would be adhered to. So that's really the most important thing, controlling the base camp brothel and controlling the girls who were active there. Uh, the next level were the maison tolleries that uh, existed um, outside of the base camps. And these were, were generally, some could be brothels that were licensed by the, the French state. And so they too would be regularly visited by doctors. So you could control it there. But beyond that, when you started to get into the, what we might call the clandestine prostitute area, then there was no a method of controlling health. If the uh, military police discovered girls who were working actively but without some sort of formal recognition of their status, then those places would be closed down. So that's the, the army's first line of response. The second line of response is to just simply try and scare the average Tommy, um, scare the living daylights out of him by giving him lectures at regular events about the horrors of venereal disease and say hope that maybe self-control would be exercised and they'd keep away from it. Needs to say that didn't always happen. So you then get the third line of response, which would be threatening the men that their families might be told. So up to uh, 1916, there was a policy with the army that if a lad got uh, a, 
disease of any sort, then his um, payments back home might be stopped and his wife or parents or whatever, mostly his wife, would be told why the payments were stopped. So there was a kind of policing in that way. That backfired on the army because, of course, what that did was immediately cause a, a morale um, outrage and there were reported cases of suicide of men who had venereal disease but couldn't face going home and admitting it. Um, a fourth line of um, prevention, shall we say, and that was literally introducing preventives. Now, of course, that's where the army gets in real problems because it cannot be seen to be providing its soldiers with contraception, shall we say, or preventives when um, it's uh, also trying to... to claim that it's not encouraging men to go with the girls. But gradually as the war progresses, and certainly within the colonial troops, we see increasing use of, um, of prophylactics. And did access to sex or sex um, on, in France actually contribute to morale, or did it hinder it? I'm thinking in terms of sort of sexually transmitted diseases and things like that. Well, obviously the sexually transmitted disease side of it, that, that if somebody did catch any sort of disease, then uh, generally that would um, lower their morale for a while. Ha having said that, however, uh, if you did catch perhaps a light disease, so we say, and that meant time out of the line, um, that could be quite welcome. That was almost like getting a blighty. Um, in fact, the military were rather concerned about men using it in, uh, in that way, and so for a while... Um, catching a disease was counted as a self-inflicted wound. The, on the other hand, just going along to the, uh, the brothels or, or playing around with local girls, which was a very important part of the, the whole sexual um, geography, shall we say. It wasn't all paid for sex. There was quite a bit of fraternization went on. So in those cases, it was a definite morale booster. Um, you know, guys were, were going off and exploring... Uh, in, in any way they could. Um, I think they, uh, their morale was a bit dampened when they found they couldn't always afford to do the things that they wanted to do because it, the girls were quite expensive relative to the pay they had and the girls could be more expensive for the average British Tommy following a visit by the Aussies and Canadians because they had more money and they tended to force the prices up. So in certain cases, you see, morale would, be, uh, would drop. But generally... I think the morale was boosted by it, not just because of the action of sex, but the, the whole um, chitter-chatter that went round it, the whole kind of um, group talk, the trench talk that would go on around it. And you've got to put into the context of the fact that the army would be a particularly coarse environment when it came to things like jokes and songs and and general conversations in the trench, and including pornography, uh, material obscene, uh, material material, sorry, that would exist in the trenches too. So um, those sort of things all tended to keep the boys' spirits up rather than depress them. And is the experience of the British Tommy similar to the French, um, poor, I can never pronounce the name, but the French well, soldier, the American doughboy, and maybe the German stormtrooper, for want of a better word? Um, yes, I mean, this is universal. That's the whole thing. This is a, 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 every soldier uh, signs up for uh, your bombs and bullets, booze and birds. And um, this, uh, the G 
Germans had brothels right up until the, the front line. They had mobile brothels. They used to run little caravans. And the, the French, of course, they'd long had their maison tolleries, which um, they had special ones for the soldiers. These were the ones we kind of inherited when we took over parts of the line from the French. Uh, we merely used the, uh, the existing brothels that existed there, the uh, existing lamps. Uh, there's evidence to show that when we started to push the Germans back um, from uh, the August period in 1918, as we overrun previously held German positions, um, Tommy made use of, of brothels that had previously been used by the German soldiers. Um, the girls, of course, they didn't really care what colour the uniform was as long as the coin was coming across. So, yes, it's universal. Every soldier was, in, was indulging in this. And finally, can we actually trust the statistics that were produced by the War Office? And were they generally kept, quote, secret or confidential? Um, or were they publicly accessible at the time, sort of exposing the, the level of, of STDs and obviously the problems that, that brought with taking soldiers out of active duty? Um, that's a great question. Can we trust the stats? The answer to that generally would be no. Um, there is a difficulty, because if, you, if you're going to look at statistics of, let's say, the one statistic that you can really focus on is to say, let's have a look at how many people had venereal disease, and that might give us some sort of indication um, as to how prevalent sex was. There are problems with that statistic. Firstly, we don't know how many of the men might have caught venereal disease at home rather than as abroad, because I was saying earlier, um, venereal disease was endemic to society at the time. There were no cures for it, so it could conceivably be picked up from um, sexual activity back in Britain on leave as well as in France. Um, perhaps that, that, that information, by the way, is there because, of course, you've got the hospitals all operating, um, and um, it would be pretty obvious that, that men were in hospital for that sort of disease rather than gunshot wounds or trench foot. But the argument that military police would be advancing um, would be that a lot of the uh, diseases were caught at home rather than on the front because the military police would be judged, obviously, by the uh, control that it was putting onto its... Um, uh, activities of the local girls. You see, in theory, if everybody was using the base camp brothel, there shouldn't be any diseases because, by by definition, the base camp brothel was healthy. So anybody who's catching venereal disease, catching disease from girls who are working illegally, and these girls working illegally are supposedly under the control of the um, military police. So you get a lot of of uh, argument going on uh, about statistics at that level. Now, there's a further problem with the venereal disease statistics. Nothing to do with whether they're being concealed or not, but to do with just the nature of those statistics, how they're collected, and indeed, um, you know, how much misdiagnosis might there have been, or uh, things like saying, okay, every sexual contact doesn't necessarily lead to catching a disease, even with somebody who already has it. So there, there, there are lots of problems, actually, in trying to measure activity directly through the venereal disease statistics. They're, they're just a pointer to what was going on. 
And finally, Bruce, where can people find out more about your book and your research into this area? Uh, well, my, my book is, is called uh, They Didn't Want to Die Virgins, A Study of Sex and Morale on the Western Front. Uh, it's, uh, it's available, I think, on Amazon, although I believe that uh, it's, it's running down. They're looking at reprint at the moment. Otherwise, people can always get odd copies from me if they're really desperate. I've got a few that I can supply Western Front members with. Bruce, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Enjoyed it very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>